so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the Digital Public Square, a podcast from the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission about ethics, theology, and philosophy in today's society. I'm your host, Jason Thacker, and I serve as Chair of Research and Technology Ethics and also help lead the ERLC Research Institute. Each week, I'm joined by some of society's most influential thinkers, writers, and leaders to talk about the important ideas shaping our society today, as well as some of the top issues of life in the digital public square. Our goal with this podcast is to equip you to navigate these issues with biblical wisdom and insight. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the Weekly Tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology, as well as life in the digital public square. You can subscribe now at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. In today's episode, I'm joined by Jake Meditor, editor-in-chief of Mere Orthodoxy and the author of a new book from IVP entitled What Are Christians For? Life Together at the End of the World. And today we talk about politics, ethics, and the common good. Jake also serves as the editor of Plow Magazine and is the author of two books, including his first book, In Search of the Common Good, Christian Fidelity in a Fractured World. His work has been published at First Things, National Review, Books and Culture, Commonweal, Christianity Today, Front Porch Republic, and the University of Bookman. He lives with his wife and children in his hometown of Lincoln, Nebraska. And now let's join our conversation. Well, Jake, thank you so much for joining us today here on the Digital Public Square. As we get started, can you tell us a little bit about your story and how your work at Mirror Orthodoxy came about? Uh, Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be on. So I've been running Miro for seven years now, which is kind of weird to think about. Um, (laughs) But I've been writing for Miro for like 10 or 11 years. I've been friends with Matt Anderson, our founder, for like 14 years. Um, so we go back a while, and I think the one of the central concerns for us, at least, is how do we talk about Christian faith in a way that actually sounds like good news to our readers, and that we would write and speak in such a way that we actually do have a diverse readership, and that we're not just kind of preaching to the choir with what we do. So the way I've kind of taken to talking about it lately is that we're talking to kind of spiritually curious non-Christians, first-gen Christians, badly catechized Christians, and faithful Christians who are just kind of lonely and feel very isolated um, in their churches or their communities because of the way the last few years have gone. I think the reason that that is a concern for me, at least, is I grew up in a really, um, I don't think abusive is too strong a word to use, church, kind of MacArthurite, world, but they would actually see MacArthur as a liberal. Um, And I've seen a lot of people leave the faith. I've seen a lot of people leave the church. I know that story very well. I think I came close at points to doing it myself. And 
I, it grieves me and I'm tired of seeing it. And so we're trying to create a magazine, create podcasts, and just generally have a kind of public face that is hopeful and engaging and not needlessly alienating while still being committed to orthodoxy. If orthodoxy offends people, we're kind of fine with that. If our demeanor, our way of engaging, our way of treating people is what alienates people, we're not okay with that. Yeah. Well, and I know you guys recently launched the print journal for Mirror Orthodoxy, and it looks great. I'm hoping to get a copy of it sometime soon. You've written a lot. As you said, you've been writing for a number of years. You've been writing for Miro. And then also you have a couple books. So you focus on the common good, politics, and faith. In this new book, you really cast a vision for kind of Christian political engagement. So I want to know a little of the backstory. Like, why did you want to write a book like this? And kind of why do you think this was the time to do it? Uh, yeah, so it started, I think, when by the time I was later years in college, I went to the University of Nebraska. So I was kind of doing my own version of what we'd call deconstruction now, but this was back in the mid-2000s, so a pretty different context. But I was doing it as an English and history major at a public university working for the campus paper, which is just a very different kind of context to be doing that kind of thinking. And one of the places that I ended up being directed to, often by Reformed friends, was Catholic social teaching documents. So I was reading John Paul II and Benedict XVI, and also older stuff than that, that kind of goes back to the 1890s and Leo XIII. And I've always found their thought very helpful and even moving at points. Evangelii Vitae by John Paul II is just a beautiful document. <laughs> and yet, as I became more convinced of Reformed distinctives, I'm part of the, P I'm a member in a PCA church here in Lincoln. I felt like I wish there were more sources for Protestants to pick up that dealt with these kind of questions and dealt with them in the with the same level of thought and care and nuance that you can find in Roman encyclicals. And so I was, when I started the book, I was thinking, I'm going to just try to retrieve the neo-Calvinists for today. And so the neo-Calvinists are Kuyper, Abraham Kuyper and Hermann Bavinck, late 19th century Dutch reformed thinkers, early 20th as well. But then as I was doing more reading, it kind of branched, as I think probably often happens with these projects, um, and so I found myself drawing in other sources and raising other issues. But the heart of the book is I want to write an account of what a public Christianity looks like that is pervasively Christian, not just Christian in its ends and kind of indifferent in its means or its tactics, um, but that is pervasively Christian. And that's engaged with the questions people are asking right now, the questions that keep people from faith, that cause people to leave the faith, or even just questions that kind of vex people who are convinced Christians but aren't really sure what the faith says about certain issues. So that was the, the goal for really both books, but especially this one. Yeah. Well, and that's what I really appreciate about kind of what you mentioned there is that not only is our faith a public faith, obviously, when we step into the public square, we don't shed our faith. It obviously informs every single thing that we do. And then even we've had, especially over the last couple podcasts, we had Jordan Baylor on a couple of weeks ago uh, talking about the completed works, uh, the recently completed works from Lexham on uh, public theology from him. We've had the Joostras on to talk about their work, and especially with Abraham Kuyper. And Bob Inc. is someone who has been very formative on my thought as well. 
But I appreciated what you said there, especially about kind of Catholic moral tradition. As I've studied ethics more of the last few years, that's one of the areas that while we have theological and doctrinal disagreements with Catholics on certain issues, a lot of the moral teaching, there's a lot of carryover. There's a lot of uh, continuity between Catholic, early Catholic thought especially and uh, Protestant thought. And so that's something I will unpack a little bit here on the podcast, but I wanted to point that out. I know one of the phrases that often gets thrown out when we talk about kind of a Christian social witness or public witness is the term common good. And that the word common good or that phrase can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So I wanted to ask you, when you employ the term the common good, what are you meaning by that? And what kind of, how does that connote and kind of differ maybe from other ways that people would use that term? Yeah, so it's a tricky term to use. Kuiper actually says it's chameleon-like at points, so he's not a huge fan even. There are several ways it can be used. Ultimately, like, God is the good that all of us are made to know, and in that sense would be a common good, and I I don't have any dispute with that use of it. Um, The way I was trying to talk about it, especially in the first book, is the idea that I was distinguishing between private goods and common goods. So one of the problems I see right now is that when we think of goods that people enjoy, we mostly think in terms of private things. So the idea is like, I have this good of, I don't know, the park near my house that I get to walk down to and sit in and enjoy. And it's just this thing I enjoy by myself. Or um, like the private enjoyment, you could even like it, the idea of the common good is it, it's not a pizza that each of us gets a slice of and we're done. But the, like that's actually a private good. We're getting private sustenance from the thing. When I talk about a common good, I mean something that has to be enjoyed collectively. Otherwise, you're not getting the same kind of thing. So the best um, kind of analogy I've heard for it would be like a symphony. You know, if the first violin decides to start playing their part of the symphony, but they're just sitting by themselves at home, you're not getting the symphony. You need the full orchestra to be able to enjoy that. And so another way that you might be able to get at it is when we think about freedom, the primary way a lot of people think about freedom, it's got two elements. One is it's individual. So it's things I enjoy as an individual and two is it's negative. So freedom basically means what I'm free from. So I'm free from government meddling in my affairs. I'm free from my neighbor telling me what I can and can't do, um, that kind of thing. The way I often want to talk about freedom is instead in more communal terms and in more positive terms. So instead of what am I free from, to say what are we free to, um, we are free to do what. So it refers to the ways that a group of people are able to realize their right ends together. There's actually, I'll, I'll throw one more way of ra- framing it out there, just see what is helpful to listeners. Um, but Althusius, he's a reformed political theorist from the 17th century. He says that politics are that exist to order our life together in mutually beneficial or delightful ways. So what he wants to say is the purpose of our politics is so that all of the ways that you and I have to coexist, it's like no one person can sustain their life entirely on their own. I live in a house that I didn't build. I'm using headphones right now that I didn't make. Um, I'm going to eat food that I didn't grow for dinner in a few hours. I'm inherently relational because I have to be in order to live. 
So Althusia says politics exists to make those unavoidable relationships delightful. And so the idea, once again, is what kind of goods do we share amongst our neighbors that we can't enjoy privately? And how do we structure our lives together so that we can pursue those goods together? One of the problems we have today is that our society is kind of set up in such a way that unchosen obligations are seen as an injustice. People who can make demands on us are seen as kind of inhibiting our free expression. And the unfortunate consequence of that is that a lot of these collective goods that we enjoy together get lost. So even to use something simple, last summer I was out at uh, Anabaptist Community in New York, and the last night of the conference, we sat out by a fire and sang folk songs together for like a half hour. So you had a bunch of people playing instruments and then a bunch of us just singing along. Um, that kind of thing is a common good that can't really be enjoyed privately. It's also an experience that the vast majority of people aren't really going to have because we don't have that kind of culture of music. We don't have opportunities for congregating in that way. And so it's a good that most people will just never experience. And it's delightful, but most people don't even know they're missing it because they've never been around it. They've never had a chance to experience it or enjoy it. And there's lots of things like that in our culture right now. Well, I like the way you talk about it, especially with kind of the communal element, because I think often in our culture today, we're very individual. It's all about the individual. It's all about my right, my choice, my body. And you see that as a, a real predominant expression of kind of Western society, especially contemporary Western society. So obviously in the book, you dig into that kind of the nature of uh, Western society, some of these kind of threads almost that it kind of run through, especially things like the sexual revolution, et cetera. So what do you see as kind of the core aspects of this, of kind of Western society that may be at odds with kind of a Christian conception of society? Like, so what are some things that we're pursuing or these movements or these, you know, quote, revolutions that are really at odds with uh, the biblical vision for social engagement? Yeah. So the core idea that I want to really take apart is what Willie Jennings, who's a theologian at Yale, he calls self-designation. So the idea is, you know, imagine you're in a, you just moved in, you're in a new city, or you just took a new job, or you're in a new church. The natural question you're going to ask yourself is, who am I here? You're trying to kind of place yourself within the community, within the place, understand how you're supposed to live in that context. And what you should do in that kind of context is, obviously, we are ultimately accountable to God for our actions. But then in discerning specific kind of what does this look like here, you ask your neighbors, you observe, you kind of take in what does the life of this place already look like, and how do I responsibly, faithfully participate in it? That's what should happen. What mostly happens in our world today is people just look inward and they define who they're going to be everywhere they go. They define what they want. They define the ways they want to obtain it. And what that has the effect of doing is it kind of hardwires a certain kind of violence into all of our relationships. Because obviously, I'm going to self-designate in one way. You're going to self-designate in another way. And especially as you get more people and it becomes more diverse and there's more desires, those self-designating individuals are going to enter into competition with each other. And the only way you're going to have of working it out, because we've 
effectively already ignored neighbors and place and all these other things that could bring us together is you're going to need either money or government to kind of coerce you into living together with people. And for Jennings, this is what's interesting, and this is why the book kind of spun out beyond the neo-Calvinists. What I just said is basically what a teacher of Kuiper's named Grun means when he talks about the revolution, which is also a big idea for Kuiper. But then I started reading Jennings, and Jennings starts talking about self-designation in the colonial era. And so Jennings says, you have a Spanish conquistador showing up in the new world, and they ask themselves, who am I in this new place? Well, the way they should answer that is they should look at the life that's already there in that place. They should learn from it. They should adapt themselves to it, find ways of serving their new neighbors, and so on. But what the Spanish and Portuguese and later other groups did instead was they looked at all of that and they just saw stuff for themselves to consume, to use, to enrich themselves. And so they didn't think anything of trampling on people and cultures and places. And they destroy whole people groups. They also destroy the landscape because they don't understand how it's different than the land they came from in Europe. And so they use really destructive farm practices. This happened in North America. I'm, I'm in Nebraska. Like This used to be prairie 200 years ago. It's not anymore. I have friends in Australia, same story there. And so Jennings argues that this move to self-designate actually goes all the way back to colonialism, and he carries it forward from there. And so what I tried to do in the book is synthesize what you're getting from Grun and Kuiper and Bovink with what Jennings is doing, because I think they rhyme in some really important ways. I know throughout the book, you kind of critique kind of the modern kind of liberal order in some sense, especially the way that we organize our society, and specifically through even kind of the rise of the sexual revolution in some sense. And I think a lot of listeners would be kind of attuned to a lot of the public conversations happening around the sexual revolution with LGBTQ plus rights, et cetera, uh, marriage, sexuality. All of this is kind of front and center in so many of our public debates today. So especially when we're thinking through kind of the the sexual revolution, can you help us to frame that up? Because I think for some, it feels like it's just hit. But in reality, the sexual revolution has been going on for multiple decades and generations, and it's kind of part of this larger kind of movement within kind of the Western society. That's right. The logic has been there for a while, and the technology has been there for a while. And so we're seeing it kind of spin out. Yeah, so what I do in the chapter on the sexual revolution is I start off by talking about the invention of the pill and some of the problems that lead to the pill becoming so popular in the 60s and 70s. And so really what happens is prior to the sexual revolution, we had the industrial revolution. And one of the consequences of an industry is that economically self-sustaining households get blown up. So all of these tradesmen who used to make a living working out of their home are now getting pulled into factories because they can't compete with the capitalist class and they get competed out of business and now they have to get a job outside the house. Um, This is stuff Nancy Piercy's Total Truth is really good on this because she talks about this in there. And so what happens now is the husband is taken out of the home and eventually industrial work starts to become really lucrative and it turns out okay for the men. But by the time you get to the 50s and 60s, the women are kind of left behind. So if you're a wealthier woman, wealthier, usually white woman in the U.S., you run into the problem Betty Friedan talks about in Feminine Mystique, 
where you're essentially managing this consumption center that is your home, but there's not a lot of dignifying work in the home or what feels like dignifying work, skilled work in the home. You're pushing buttons and coordinating schedules um, and it's very alienating. And if you're not a well-off white woman at that time, you have you might have other similar issues that are ratcheted up in intensity. But because we've kind of hardwired violence into our social order, the solution we land on is we essentially render women's bodies equivalent to men's and their reproductive capacity. Um, Because that was the reason that women weren't able to work in the factories is because they could get pregnant. And pregnancy is extremely disruptive (laughs) if you're a worker bee in a factory. And so what we did is we figured, well, if we can just make it so women can't get pregnant, they can also participate in the same kind of economy and they won't experience the kind of alienation that Friedan is describing. But the consequence of that is you essentially create an economy that runs off of the hostility to life and that also teaches people that there's not really anything in your body that should dictate the way you live in the world bodies can be reformed to align with the needs of the marketplace and to align with your own desires, which, I mean, here we are. But what I want to say in the book is, well, no, this goes back to the sexual revolution and widely available contraception. But also before that, it goes back to blowing up household economies, which was something going on in the 1800s. So what we really have been doing for centuries now is building and expanding this way of living that's founded in violence, it's founded in mistrust of neighbor and mammonism. And as it has allowed itself to spin out more and more, we now no longer know what people are. We no longer know what we're supposed to do in the world. We no longer know how to be in relationship with each other. And all we're left with is kind of narrating our own identities and trying to assert those identities in the world, often through our jobs and how we use our money. And the outcome of all of this is a lot of loneliness, a lot of anxiety, a lot of despair. But we aren't going to solve the problem by just rolling things back to 1995 or 2000 or 1955, for that matter. The problem is built into the way we live on a really, really deep level. So I guess on to go further on that then, obviously throughout the book, you're kind of critiquing kind of the modern moral order, to pull a phrase from uh, Charles Taylor. But talking a little bit about kind of our modern order, what's the alternative? I think a lot of times we might see some of the critique and say, yeah, I think that's valid. Or, you know, I don't agree on every single point, but I generally agree on some of these points. But I think a lot of times the question, especially that I've noticed in their church and our various circles, is there's kind of a, an argument almost or a debate going on, well, what do we do about it? Some in terms of like church-state relations, uh, there's some conversations about that kind of reshaping the the modern order and the way we go about it, whether it's capitalism, et cetera. So in your opinion, what is this, not me, maybe not solution, because I don't want to just say, well, we just have this one thing and this is going to fix it all, but what kind of, how would you reshape it in that sense? And what is this vision that you're really putting forth in the book? Yeah. So the first thing to bear in mind is that if you are a Christian, you are obliged by our Lord to believe that there are worse things that can happen to you than physical suffering, physical marginalization, persecution, and so on. 
that's inherent in what Christ says about gaining the world and losing your soul, which is another way of saying that there are tactics and methods that are closed off to us, that are not closed off to people who do not follow Jesus. I often will use the Lord of the Rings as kind of a a good comparison here. There are things that Sauron and Saruman can do that the fellowship cannot. And that comes with a certain degree of risk then, because you can't use some of the tactics that they use. So I would not say that there's a top-down, like, all-in-one solution to what I'm describing here. For people that have the agency and power to change the way a business treats its workers or to change the way government interacts with citizens. Christians should do that in whatever way they can um, for the good of the people under their influence. And that could be anything from adopting more pro-family policies at your company so that parents have an easier time adjusting to having new children in the home. So like I worked for a company for a while with a Christian CEO and he had a pretty, by the standards of our region and our industry, a pretty generous parental leave policy because he wants to, he wants his employees to be able to have children and he wants to do what he can as a business owner to support that. A lot of people are not going to have that level of agency. And so the things that I think are available for most of us to do are to try to imagine our lives as if, this sounds trite, but as if all of the things that the Bible says about the human person and your your end and what God's called you to are true. And so your chief end is not a lucrative job if that alienates you from your family. Your chief end is not to move around every three years in search of the next good experience to give you a good feeling if that inhibits the formation of relationship, if that prevents you from fulfilling obligations to friends and family. And so when you are making day-to-day decisions about where you will work, where you will shop, how you will use your time, making those decisions as if your neighbor is holy, as if you owe something to them, and you want to do what you can to make yourself available to them. And that's intentionally vague because I don't want to try to tell everyone who's listening to this who has very eclectic, diverse living situations exactly what they need to do. But I think the point is you want to structure your life in such a way that you're able and available to your neighbors and your church community to love and serve them because that's what God tells us to do. And I think if we had more Christian communities that were thinking in this way, and even asking that question can get radical real fast. I mentioned earlier an Anabaptist community I'm friends with and I work with actually because I'm an editor at Plow, their magazine. It's a community of a few hundred people in upstate New York that live together and hold all things in common. They've taken lifetime vows to the community. They've renounced private property and they live in community with each other so that they can love and support each other the way they believe Jesus has called them to. And they would say all they're doing is applying Acts 2 and Acts 4. Now, I mean, obviously you can disagree on how to interpret those biblical texts. I'm not saying I agree with every bit of what they're doing. But I am saying that if you're reading the Bible and taking its moral teachings seriously and living in a society that's as alienating and cruel as ours is, it's not going to take a whole lot before your life starts getting disrupted in some uncomfortable and significant ways. 
Well, and that's one of the things I appreciate about the way you approach these things. While we might not agree on every single kind of jot and tittle, just like you said with the Anabaptist community, I love the nuance that you bring to these things to say, look, I'm not speaking for all people. I'm not kind of making these bold kind of declarations. You're speaking with nuance and charitability. And that's something that's sorely lacking. Uh, I think from all of us, we would agree is sorely lacking in the public square today. One of the things that you've mentioned a couple times now is kind of the natural order or these natural goods. Um, and I know reading your work kind of that there's an influence of kind of the natural law tradition that comes especially from the Catholic moral tradition, but is seeing a resurgence in many ways throughout Protestantism and especially in evangelicalism, uh, which is really encouraging to me. And while I might have some differing kind of uh, slightly different opinions on the usefulness or the viability or the, the breadth of what we can know from the natural order, it's undeniable if you read the scriptures that God is not only revealing himself to us in the in special revelation in scripture, but he's also revealing himself in the natural order and how we've been created, not only in his image, but as men and women, distinctly and unique. We've been created for a community. We see all these kind of natural goods. So one of the things I wanted to ask you, and I think would be a treat to the listeners, is just to hear a little bit more about natural law, because I think it comes with a lot of baggage so I'd love to hear a little bit about kind of this created order, this natural order, um, and the natural law tradition, and how that plays into kind of the vision that you have for Christian political engagement. Yeah. So I guess there's kind of two preliminary thoughts and then two applications with nature and natural law. So the first thing to say with natural law, just as a caveat up front, is that the natural law is going to be very underdetermined when it comes to kind of policy questions. So the natural law can give us moral guidance. It can't tell us what the tax rate should be. So there's a lot of things that have to be worked out prudentially by local people in local places figuring out what is right for their community, but never in a way that contradicts the natural law, but rather just a way that kind of articulates it in their unique context. As to kind of defining it, I, I'll just kind of talk in general terms. If you actually read someone like Lewis, it's the idea of a natural order is so central to Lewis's thought. I don't think most of his books would survive if you removed natural law. When he kind of makes his case for Christianity and mere Christianity, he starts with natural law. When he makes his case against a certain species of modernity, in the abolition of man, he's working with natural law. And what he means by that is there's this very simple sense in which there is a kind of moral order inherent in creation, such that there are moral laws in the same way that there are laws of physics or the law of gravity. And moreover, that people enter the world with this knowledge. Um, when God breathed into us the breath of life, he breathed this knowledge into us. Is how I'm editing a volume now for Davenant, and that was how Eric Hutchinson, one of our authors, talked about it in his essay on law, which people should read when it comes out. It's great. Um, but so yeah, that's the idea, is that there is a natural order in the world that dictates how we ought to be in the world. And each of us is born to some degree with a knowledge of that. Now, that knowledge can be, I mean, that knowledge is subject to the curse of sin. And we can sear our consciences over time, such that we kind of forget what we know, in a sense. 
And yet the forgetting and the difficulty sometimes of knowing does not negate the fact that there is a moral order. And to some degree, we are born with knowledge of that internally. The two applications that I've been talking with a lot of people about on this that I think are both really important. So the first one, one of the real problems we have right now in the U.S., and I would guess that it probably applies to most of the West, is that a lot of people have kind of given up on persuasion. And we think the only really, the only, the only force that matters in politics is power. And if you have power, you can do what you want. Who cares about the other guys? So there's two things that a robust doctrine of natural law or natural order does for us. The first is it gives us a kind of common terrain that we're all standing on, Christian or non-Christian, and reasoning about and interacting with together. And this is really important when you live in a society that is as obsessed with power as ours is and as despairing of being able to persuade people as we are. If the world, I've heard Joe Rigney describe it this way, if the world is Plato, politics is just a fight over who gets to shape the Plato. And that's a really bad way of having poli- of approaching politics because it, everything becomes super fraught. Because if the other guys get the Plato, they'll do whatever they want with it and we're going to suffer. But if reality is fixed in some sense, then we have a common domain that we reason about and we enter into. Now, of course, what can happen, and I think is happening, as Paul predicts in Romans 1, is that eventually people become far enough lost in their sins that their consciences are seared, and it is very difficult for them to kind of access what they know internally about the world and about what how we ought to live in it. And when you get to that point, it's not good news. But not everyone in a, in a country is going to get there. And there's always going to be people that you can reason with. And if you can kind of gesture to the world that we share, um, there's lots of things we can learn about how we ought to live together from observing the world together with our neighbors. So it, it gives us a common space that we share and reason about together. So we're looking at the same thing. Uh, the other thing that a good doctrine of natural law does for Christians in particular is I think it anchors our faith in the real world that we live in every day. And so it's not that these moral teachings in scripture are just kind of this like arbitrary set of rules that God made up one day because he was bored and, hey, why not? Here's some rules. Like that's not the idea of the law in scripture. The idea is that God's law flows out of his character, his perfect, loving, complete, good character. And it manifests itself in the way that he made the world. And so when we follow the natural law, it lines up with creation. Um, Francis Schaeffer used the analogy of, he said, suppose you had a, a book, you just had the spine and the front and back covers, and the pages had been torn out. But then one day you find this sheaf of papers and they line up perfectly with the book along all the tear marks and you slide them in and maybe some of the words line up based on where the paper's torn. And he said, that's kind of the relationship between the natural law and God's revelation to us in scripture. You can hold that spine and know that there is a book that this belongs to. Um, There are pages that fit with this and pages that don't. And then you find the pages that fit with it. And so it's a kind of confirmation or reassurance 
that what we see in scripture is not just this kind of ad hoc thing, but it actually aligns with the nature of reality. And so it should kind of strengthen your faith, I think, strengthen your confidence in God's word to be able to see, independent of God's word, the way that what he says in scripture aligns with what you are able to see and know about the world. Yeah, and I think that's really helpful. I mean, I've heard a lot of people talk about the natural law as uh, kind of a common ground of persuasion. I guess the hard part about that, though, in some sense, is that we have, there are certain denials that are made by kind of wider society, but even groups of any type of objective morality, any type of objectivity in that sense. Even on scientific grounds, we see that, especially with some kind of the modern philosophical movements. And so I guess one of the questions, I've, you've talked a lot about specifically kind of the Christ, individual Christian or kind of the communal, the community that we live in, in terms of kind of shaping the order and um, the communal kind of elements. And one of the things I guess I think listeners may be wondering is, well, what is in terms of politics, in terms of like the political order in that sense is how do Christians interact in that? I know there are some differing kind of views on the role of the church uh, well, the I guess the relationship of the church and the state, obviously you come from a PCA background, I'm from a Southern Baptist background. We have some distinctions in, in our own beliefs there. So I guess one of the questions I have is just kind of understanding how you approach in terms of like the political order and Christians' involvement in that or the church's involvement in that in terms of laws that are being made or things that are being legislated or ruled upon or ordinances and things like that. How does... What's that relationship, I guess, between the church's teachings and this objective reality and that of a very pluralistic society where there are very differing understandings on the nature of reality? Yeah. Oh, man, there's so many places we could go with that question. <laughs> so I guess maybe I want to close off two doors right away and say, so the first thing I want to close off is the idea that the public square and political life is religiously neutral and Christianity doesn't get to talk there. So there's not this kind of like, you have to found all your values purely in like religiously neutral beliefs before they're allowed to be expressed in public or before they're allowed to shape public policy. I think we need to reject that view. The other thing I'd want to reject though, is the idea that, so there's one essayist who wrote for a magazine a couple of years ago that the state helps people realize their highest end. And this person's a Catholic, and he would actually defend the traditional Catholic teaching that the Roman Church has coercive authority over baptized Christians, which is how you get the Inquisition. And so he would look at all of this and say, all these liberal rights, free speech, freedom of religion, um, freedom of assembly, that's how we get to this expressive individualism, and they all need to go. And what I would want to say to that is actually, well, no, the state's not responsible to guide me to my highest end. The state is responsible to protect public order. I think you can also say, I think we'd probably both agree here, that the state is responsible to secure the kind of conditions where the gospel can take root and be heard. Now, depending on how you parse religious freedom, that could get defined in different ways, but I think we'd agree there. But the church is who preaches the gospel. The church is who baptizes. The church is who serves the Lord's Supper. Um, the church is who guides us in Christian discipline. And so, no, like the state has a limited role. More than that, I would actually say that a lot of these liberal rights are means by which we love our neighbor. 
when I say that free speech is a right that I want to protect and that is important, I'm not saying that primarily because I'm scared of what would happen if the wrong team got into politics and took away freedom of speech. I'm actually saying that that is a concern, but I'm actually saying freedom of speech is a good because it is a means by which I can love my neighbor by recognizing that my neighbor can and will say things that are false, that are misleading, that are hurtful. But rather than exercising immediate judgment on them, I withhold my judgment and treat them with mercy and also treat them with a sense of hope that they will not always say those things. And as we live in a neighborly relationship together, we can grow closer to what God has for us over time. And that happens organically. It happens as God wins a person to him as he wins their heart, rather than as we have states kind of enforcing top-down laws that coerce people in ways that are unjust. So those would be the two doors I'd want to close off. And yet what I would then want to say is the state has a positive role to play in, Dorothy Day would talk about making a world in which it's easier to be good. And I I like that concept a lot as a kind of generalized principle for how the state can serve and advance the good of all people under its care. So I think that can stand, like that can go in kind of the classic kind of Christian religious right categories is like, we should have laws that protect the unborn and allow them to live. Um, We should also have laws that make abortion less necessary um, for people, which is not to say you'll ever fully eradicate abortion or that we should have these like huge carve outs or anything like that. But you need to care for the unborn and you need to care for the mother when you're dealing with abortion. We should have an understanding of marriage as a society that comports with the natural design of our bodies and intent of sexuality. But I think it also means that, well, to maybe step on some toes going the other way, a lot of American evangelicals have ideas about money and wealth that I think are more influenced by a really almost libertarian species of capitalism than they are by the teachings of scripture or the traditional teachings of the church. And so what I think I can just say it this way. It's bold, but I've read enough. I think it's there. The Christian church traditionally has not held that you have an absolute right to use your property however you want. In the PCA, the Westminster Catechism is a binding confessional document for us, and it says that you have violated the Eighth Commandment if you do not give freely according to the needs of your neighbor. It says that that's a form of theft. And that's a really extreme sort of statement compared to what a lot of us, I think, are used to, which is that like, if I did the work and I earned the money, I get to do whatever I want with it. And you can't tell me that I have to give something. But what the church has traditionally said is, well, yes, you have a right to property, but that right is conditional. And if your neighbor doesn't have food and you have more than you need, your neighbor's need to eat trumps your right to do with all of your wealth or what to do whatever you want with all of your wealth. And so there's a, a very different kind of approach to wealth and money that you find in scripture and church tradition than you would find if you were just going off of, I don't know, Milton Friedman or something like that. And so I think if you're working in politics, 
you can and should try to advance policies that, I mean, like the, the expanded child tax credit we had last year was a fantastic example of something that I think Christians should be supporting. It reduced child poverty in this country dramatically. Um, and I mean, in my case, I, I joked with friends that Joe Biden did more to help me afford Christian school for my kids than any Republican ever has, because we had this child tax credit coming in every month, and that helped us afford tuition for a Christian school for our kids. Um, but that's the kind of policy that I think Christians should be able to get behind because it supports families um, and makes it easier for them to have and care for children. And yet that's a policy that some more kind of economic right-wing people would be nervous about. But I think it's a very easy policy to justify Christianly. Yeah. And obviously there's so much nuance and debate on some of those things that I honestly wish we had time to get into. There's so much that we could really unpack here, not only in that question, but really this kind of larger question. Um, but unfortunately, we're almost out of time. And so one of the questions that I always leave our, our guest with is especially just kind of resourcing. The goal of this podcast is to help people think deeper and better and more charitable and nuanced and uh, more thoughtful about really these really important issues in our society. And so to that end, what are some recommendations in terms of books or articles, whether they informed kind of you as you were writing that you found very helpful, or maybe things that you would say, hey, based on some of the things we've talked about, I, I would recommend this. We'll link to these in the, in the podcast show notes for folks to be able to grab, especially if they want to read not only your helpful book, as well as some of these other resources, but what are some resources you'd recommend? I'll throw out five books, actually. So for something contemporary that's going to have a little bit more practical slant to it, but would, I think, have the same kind of basic social vision that I'm trying to get at. My colleague at Plow, Joy Clarkson, just had a book come out from Moody called Aggressively Happy that is wonderful. And you will come away with all kinds of practical ideas of how to kind of order your life toward God and to neighbor when you're done with that book. It's wonderful. Then the others that I would recommend, Herman Bovink's Christian Worldview is an excellent book. The James Eglinton bio on Bovink is excellent. And then two older books that I would recommend, but they're both actually not that hard to find. So Martin Bootser, who's a reformer that I work with a lot in the book, he was a um, contemporary of Luther's and kind of a father figure mentor to John Calvin, um, actually was the one who set up Calvin and Idelette de Boer, his wife. He has one book called Instructions in Christian Love. It's just a real thin little paperback from Whitfinstock. I think it's like eight bucks on most sites that I've seen. But it's Bootser's attempt to instruct the early Reformational church in how to love neighbor. I think it was written in like 1524. So it's super early, but it's great. And then the other work from Bootser, it's his final book. It's called De Regno Christi, um, Concerning the Kingdom of Christ. And he wrote it in 1550, I believe, just before he died. But it's Bootser's, essentially his kind of address to King Edward in England, attempting to guide the king in how to promote a Christian society in England. And so it covers everything from poverty and almsgiving and economics to marriage and family to the church but it's just this kind of comprehensive treatment by Bootser of what a Christian society is. And I, I find it enormously helpful. It's, it doesn't map well onto our contemporary politics at all, but it's a, a really, really helpful book for just getting some principles down. 
Well, those are some great recommendations. We'll make sure to link to them all in the show notes. And especially, uh, we'll link to a prior podcast that we did with Dr. James Eglinton about the Bob Inc. biography. Uh, so that was kind of fitting uh, that you mentioned that. We'll make sure to link to that for listeners. It was a really fascinating conversation, especially diving into some of not only his thought on theology and ethics, but even getting into some questions of like philosophy of technology at the end. So it was a really fun conversation uh, that we had with Dr. Eglinton. And we'll make sure to link to all that. But Jake, I really appreciate you not only your work, um, but kind of the way you approach a lot of these issues, kind of that charitable, that nuance. And so I just really appreciate you taking the time to join us today here on the Digital Public Square. Thanks. This has been fun. Well, from all of us here at the Digital Public Square, I want to say thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, would you consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing and also share the word about the podcast with others. As a reminder, you can connect with Jake and learn more about his new book, as well as the recommended resources we talked about in the show notes. Also, make sure to sign up to receive the weekly tech email briefing that comes out each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology and the public square, as well as to stay up to date on the latest technology news. You can subscribe at jasonthacker.com slash weekly tech. The Digital Public Square is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is produced and hosted by Jason Thacker. Production assistance is provided by Cameron Hayner and technical production provided by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. Thank you, and I hope you have a great week.